Welcome to Providence Road. We're really, really glad that you're here this morning. Am I on? There you go. All right. I'd like to invite you to come back to your seat. Sorry to break up good conversation. Um, welcome to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And we are really, really glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're a guest. Um, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. If you are a guest, I want to turn your attention to something that should be under every other seat. These are our welcome cards. It gives a, a good overview of who we are as a church. And at the bottom, there's a place you can tear off. And you can put your name and your email. And if you prefer text, put your phone number in there and just put prefer text. Some different boxes you, you can check. You can, um, if you have something that you would like for us to pray for, you can write that in there as well. And you tear that off and you drop it in one of our offering baskets, which, which are on the walls at this exit back here and these two exits over here by the door. So Tear it off, fill it out, and put it in the box. Um, if, uh, if you're interested in, in learning more about the church, and it will give us an opportunity to connect with you because we want your involvement with Providence Road to go past just attending on, uh, on Sunday morning. We want it to, you to become a part of the family, and there's steps that we put in place for you to be able to do that. Um, but we need uh, to be able to start that, so we need uh, your information to be able uh, to do that. If, you're, if you've uh, been around a while, if you're a member at the church, just a reminder that if you feel led to give today, the offering boxes are, once again, near the exits on the walls, just uh, if, you, uh, if you feel led to do so. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, first, um, today, after church, we are having our Connect Lunch. So if you are new to the church, you've been here just a few times, you have more questions you want uh, to meet with leadership and just hear more of a, a big picture overview of the church. We're going to be doing that after the service. It, if you can just go after the service into the foyer in this corner, just right through those doors, uh, we'll meet out there about probably five minutes after the service. So not long after the service, head out there and we will have um, Connect Lunch. Next week, we are having our baptism service, okay? This is a, a huge deal. Um, I think we have like eight or nine people getting baptized, it's a huge deal, yeah. Um, and so I encourage you to come and support them. Um, come and support them. Come and celebrate what God has done in their lives. Um, if you know people that know them, that think that should, should be here, maybe they don't attend Providence Road, get them to come as well. We want this just to be a big party and celebrating new life is really what this is about. Um, it's very, very little to no sermon. And so basically music and dunking people, and yelling, and shouting, and saying, uh, praise the Lord for what he has done. So um, it's a great time, so um, I'm really looking forward to it. So come and invite people to come with you. Uh, just a couple of quick notes. Uh, this Wednesday night, um, the college group is meeting here, um, 8 to 10, I'm out here in the four-year Wednesday night. So college students, come check that out. Just need a place to study. Please come, um, connect, whatever. 8 to 10, uh, the foyer will be open. And then on Friday of this week, we have Art Walk, okay? Something that's a, a citywide deal, and uh, participate. we participate in that now being down downtown. And so come and come by, for sure come by um, our art gallery that we'll have on Friday night, but also um, enjoy the rest of Norman. Go to the other art galleries, eat down here on Friday night, and just make a night of it, but for sure come by and check out our art gallery um, that morning. Okay, let's, uh, let's jump into the Word. We have a lot to, to get to today. We're going to be in Genesis 3. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, um, if, you have, um, if you don't have a Bible 
and maybe you're new with us. Um, we have Bibles under every other seat. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of those with you. That's our gift to you. Genesis 3 is just the first book is Genesis, and then maybe you don't even have to flip a page, and Genesis chapter 3 should be right there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to read through verse 13. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, now as we look at your word, we ask that you would um, help us focus, help us all the distractions that we have coming in. I pray that you would help us leave those aside and that we'd, we would focus on your word and more specifically on this account this, this very, very important scene in the, the big picture narrative of the Bible. And I pray as we read it that you would soften our heart. You would change our mind. You would change the way we live in light of your word. But most of all, I pray that you would receive glory from this time. And that your spirit would be active and that these wouldn't be just merely my words, but that they would be your words as well. And I pray you would change us as a result of this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we are, Sunday after Easter, okay? Sunday after Easter. And he, he's still alive, right? Like, amen? Like, like this is a weird day because we, we, we had this big buildup last week to Easter, and rightfully so. But we shouldn't change the way we celebrate just because it's a week later because he's still alive. And that is still really, really good news. That, what that means to me, at least, is that it means that the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus are sufficient for me, the fact that Jesus is still alive. That, that's the proof that everything God, that Jesus said he would do and that he has done is actually true and it actually is sufficient. So the wrath, of, the wrath that God had on me has been removed. And that's really, really good news. And I'm back in relationship with God, my Father. And so that's good news. And we can't forget that Jesus is alive. 
Uh, We are continuing to work our way through the book of Genesis, and we've been in chapters 1 and 2 for a while, and we moved on to chapter 3 last week. Chapters 1 and 2 talked about the beginnings and the foundation uh, and the design of how God created the the world and the earth and for it to, to work including how, at, how humans fit into how God has designed things. And then in chapter 3, last week, we saw the biblical story take a dark turn. As through Adam and Eve's disobedience, sin comes into the world. And last week, Blake primarily focused on the, the penalty for our sin and the fact that we've been born with this sin nature. And because all, we've all descended from Adam and Eve, they are our first parents. Therefore, we've inherited this sin nature. Yet we're also sinners, none of us is perfect, but we also have this nature that has been passed down from us, uh, to us from Adam and Eve. The only way back into right relationship with God is through his grace and his mercy through the power of the Spirit, which we respond to in faith. That is the way back into right relationship with God. And if we have faith in Jesus and who he is and what he has done, we've been reconciled to him and that we will live for all eternity in heaven, either when we die or Jesus comes back at some day in the future to set up his new heavens and new earth. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. That's what we put our faith in to become followers of Jesus. Christ is alive. This is the gospel. But here's the deal. Things don't stop there, right? Like, just because we put our faith in Jesus doesn't make life living this, living this Christian life super easy. Like we never have to fight, we never have to battle, we never have to, 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 uh, to, to think about who we are. We, 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 we still battle selfishness. We still struggle with sin. I still do the things that I don't really want to do and I have trouble doing the things that God has asked me to do. So the story doesn't stop here. We're reconciled to God, yes, through faith, but are we truly going to experience the life God has for us? Are we going to drink out of the wells where living water is found, where we'll never thirst again, as Jesus says? Or are we going to to drink out of wells that don't satisfy, that we have to come back to over and over and over? Are we going to walk the way of Jesus, or are we going to walk the way that our culture is telling us to walk? These are all really, really important questions, especially for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, and Jesus is alive, we believe the gospel, but okay, what's next? How do I live? Life goes on. And I think one of the most important things we can focus on as we try to fight to live this Christian life and walk the way of Jesus and continue to have faith is by focusing on this idea of shame, this idea of shame. Now, when I bring up this idea of shame, there's usually two responses, okay? One, you guys, when I say shame, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe it's in your past. Maybe you're, you're just sitting in it now, and shame has its claws in you, and maybe that's you. And for you, I pray and hope that what we're going to look at today is good news for you, that what we look at today actually has the power to help you overcome your shame. But the rest of you, maybe most of you may be thinking, Jeremy, like, okay, shame, what, like, what is that? Like, I, I don't even, that's not a normal word we use very often in our vocabulary. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you would say, well, I don't, I don't struggle with shame. Surely not. I've never thought of myself as struggling with shame. And my 
my response to you, really a question for you, was have you, have you ever taken the time to dig deep enough into who you are and ask yourself the question, do I struggle with shame? Because it's my experience from, from just reading the scriptures and doing many, many years of pastoral ministry that shame affects us all to some degree. To some degree, shame affects us all. And I think that's going to become clear as we move through chapter 3 of Genesis. If you remember chapter 2, Adam and Eve had perfect relationship with God, unimpeded, unhindered, walked with God, talked with God, in complete perfect fellowship with God. There was no sin, no brokenness. They had perfect peace and harmony and love and joy. That was Genesis 2. And then we hit chapter 3. But in Genesis 2, God tells them, hey, don't eat from this tree. That's his only kind of prohibition. Don't eat from this tree. And Satan tempts them, serpent tempts them, and they eat. And they give in. And then things go very badly. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 7 when it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So the serpent was right. He promised that their eyes would become open, and they would be like God. So first half of that, yeah, he got it right their eyes would be opened. But when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and ate, they were, I'm sure, shocked and surprised. But yes, their eyes had been opened, but it was open to their nakedness. And it's interesting, nothing changed about Adam and Eve. They didn't have any less clothes on in chapter three than they had on, on chapter two. So there was something about the way they saw themselves when sin came into the world, their eyes were open and they felt, felt naked. And in chapter earlier, it even ends, in the, way, the way chapter 2 ends, and I think this is intentional by God, he ends chapter 2, verse 25, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. But now in chapter 3, eyes are open, they see their nakedness. That it's interesting that the sin has actually distorted the way they look at, the, the way they look at themselves. They aren't, they aren't any different. Nothing's changed. They're the same Adam and Eve, both naked. But something about sin comes into the world and distorts the way we see ourselves. How many, uh, how many of us in this room see ourselves as something different than we really are? Like we can't understand reality because the way we look at ourselves is so distorted by our sin. And this is the first clue that what Adam and Eve in dealing with, are dealing with are, is in fact shame. And we see them obviously here in a second. We'll get to it, but they sew fig leaves together for loincloths as covering. But before I, we get too deep into Adam and Eve, I want to define what shame is, since it isn't a word that we use much often. And I think two words, one word that helps define shame is guilt. We talk about guilt more often than we talk about shame. And they're similar, and oftentimes when you experience the one, you're also experiencing the other, but there are differences. So guilt, to, to define guilt, it's really when, when someone's done something wrong. Like you felt, you feel like you haven't lived up to a specific standard. It could be a true standard, like God's standard, or it could be a standard that you have just made up. But it's a more of an objective feeling about whether you've done something right or wrong. For example, if it's your, your kind of your goal, your standard is to be patient and not get angry. 
Well, situation comes along, you get angry. So you feel guilt because you knew the standard in that situation was patience, not anger. But you experience anger, so therefore you are experiencing guilt. It's more of a courtroom idea, more objective. And it tends to be associated more with something you do. Now, shame is a little bit deeper. It's based off of not just what you do, but who you are. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Ed Welch um, has a book on shame that um, is, is, is really good, really helpful. One of the best books on shame I've read. He just looks at shame through the lens of the whole Bible. And he defines shame in this way. I think the book's called Unmasking Shame. Um, he defines it this way. Shame is the deep sense that you are, you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Okay? So you see guilt kind of wrapped up into that, um, that um, definition, and guilt often is the, the precursor to shame, if not dealt with. But shame and guilt are similar in the sense that they can both show us our need for God. And that's really, really important to remember as we work through this. They both show us our need for God if we will allow them to. Shame is also a more relational idea than guilt. Shame affects how we view ourselves. Shame affects how we view others and how we interact with others. And it for sure impacts how we view and interact with God. So you already see Adam and Eve as they view themselves. They, they were naked and unashamed. Now they see themselves as naked and they're ashamed of themselves. So let's go into that next sentence of, of, of verse 7. It says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, okay? So not only are they feeling it themselves, they also realize, oh no, like someone else can see me naked here, so I need to do something about this, okay? And it's almost comical from us looking in. It's like, you're gonna, you're gonna get some, you're naked, and you're gonna get, get some leaves to like cover yourself up, and that's gonna make it better. It's like, none of us, I think, feel especially men feel good in a speedo. It's like, so like, this is like, this is less than a speedo. So, so they're trying to create their, this, this mock speedo for themselves. And it's funny for us to look into it. It's like, really? Like, are you really going to sew leaves together and you're going to feel better about how you look? But they're panicking. They're desperate. They feel ashamed. They're going to do, find whatever's around them to give them what they need. And that's covering. They're trying to cover themselves. And we can see from looking in, it's kind of silly to try to cover your nakedness with some leaves, but in the moment, that's all they have. So they're trying to now control how others view them, which is important for us to hear. So Adam's worried about what Eve's thinking, Eve's worried about what Adam's thinking, so they're trying to control what, how others view them by using these fig leaves. Before sin came into the world, it, it, you, weren't, you could be around... They could be around each other naked, and there was no shame. You could be completely known from head to toe and not be worried at all. No sin, no shame, no need for self-protection, no, no fear of exposure. But now, we have hiding, covering up, self-protection. 
feeling exposed, feeling like a phony, feeling like a failure. All of these are symptoms of shame. And when we feel those things, none of us wants to feel those things. We're going to do something about it. We're going to go get some fig leaves, and we're going to try to cover ourselves up with anything possible. And so how does that work? I think in a, in a room this size, it could be all over the map, what your specific fig leaf is. Some of you are so addicted to something right now that you're in a cycle of shame. It's just shame, addiction, shame, addiction, and you can't get out. Maybe some of you hate yourself to the point that you maybe think about hurting yourself. Shame has got its claws in you. Maybe you're hearing voices like, I'm worthless, I don't matter, I'm ugly. It's shame talking. It's got its claws in you. It it has power over you. Now, some of us don't experience it at that level. Maybe some of you, maybe think of, you know, little things that we would consider little. Maybe you have an area of, of knowledge, area of specialty, and, and you love to, to show people how much you know in this area. And it actually comes off as arrogance to other people, but it's kind of a blind spot to you. But your fig leaf is, I feel really good about myself because I know a lot about this X, Y, or Z. So you present yourself as a person who knows it all about this particular thing. Or you could be sitting across from someone and they start to ask you questions about your story. They get to try to know you a little bit, and the anxiety builds. It's like, I don't know. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to give that part of myself to this person. I don't want to tell them this. There's the fig leaf, protection, hiding. Or maybe you have intellectual doubts about the Bible or God, and you and you feel like you should be certain with everything you believe about the Bible. So you're, you're afraid to actually voice that doubt to a brother or sister in Jesus because you're ashamed. Oh my gosh, what are they going to think if I don't really believe everything they believe? So you hold on to that doubt, and that doubt begins over time to eat at you and eat at you. This is where my story kind of comes in. I, I have struggled with this thing called shame. Um, I've, in the last 10 years or so, there's been about three seasons where I've sought counseling. Nicole with me a few of those times. And this last time, about two years ago, that I went and tried to get some help in navigating through some of the stuff I was dealing with, um, the counselor brought up shame. And it was the first time I really connected shame. And he, I mean, and he took me to this passage and he showed me the different fig leaves I was using to cover up. And he had me go back all the way to my childhood and I started, started thinking about the earliest days that I could remember. And I've actually talked to my mom and dad about this to try to figure out, was there an event that caused me to be the way that I am? Because I'm, I'm struggling with it now. And they said from, from the, the very first you know, t- time they could tell when I was two, three, four years old, I was, I was, wi- I was very high strung I, was, I had trouble having fun. I was like older, I acted older than I should be because I was so serious about these, these goals and these accomplishments that I'd set out for myself. And in those early formative years, I remembered that the two primary things that my parents told me good job for or patted me on the back was being successful in sports and being successful in school. And as a five, six, seven-year-old kid who's very impressionable, impressionable who's being formed, that felt good. So I, I thought, okay, this, is, this feels really good. I'm getting attention for this. So I'm going to continue to do these things really, really well. 
And I got so terrified of failure, so terrified of being exposed as someone who was not successful at sports or not successful at school. And obviously I wasn't perfect in those areas. And so when I did fail, that fig leaf was ripped away from me and I felt awful. I felt nakedness, I felt shame when I got a B in school. Shameful, just kind of weird stuff like that. And I'm still, I became a Christian late in high school, so I just kind of bring, because it wasn't really dealt with when I became a Christian, I bring that over into now the religious world, my work. So now I have trouble resting. I have trouble being present with people because my mind is always working. Now I'm struggling as a 40-year-old, I'm dealing with this shame that I can kind of trace back to my childhood. So I'm having to dig deep down to understand why do I do what I do? And the things that rob me of having freedom and joy and drinking from the deep wells of living water that God has for me, like when I don't experience that, I want that. And so I'm trying to be reflective and thinking, what is going on inside of me? Why am I the way I am? Well, I have some fig leaves that I continue to want to put on to cover up my shame, my nakedness, my inadequacies. What I think shame, hopefully that just helps some of you process this a little bit. What shame I think really helps us get at is our motivations for why we do what we do, good and bad. Jesus cares a lot about our motivations, not just what we do, but why we do what we do. He talks a lot about that in the Gospels. So I think a question we could ask ourselves is, why do we do the things we do? Is it for selfishness, to cover our nakedness, to cover our inadequacies? Or are we motivated to do good things because we want to honor God and we want to love others? So why we do what we do, even the good things matter to God. Let's keep moving on. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So it's affected themselves, it's affected one another, and now we see, and this is probably the most important, it actually affects their relationship with God, and the first thing they do is they hide. They contrast this in the cool of the day. You can imagine in a Middle Eastern world, cool of the day, that's probably a nice, sweet time of day to be outside. It's not hot. And so contrast, they're hiding. They're removing themselves from this blessing of being able to walk with God in the cool of the day, and yet they're over hiding behind a tree. And notice it doesn't say they're hiding, hiding from God. It says they're hiding from the presence of God. So I think they probably get that we can't completely hide from God because he's God, but they don't want to feel him around. They don't want him around. They don't want his presence near them. They're hiding from the presence of God. And how often do we do this when we mess up? We mess up and we feel bad. So I'm not going to read my Bible right now because I don't feel like I should because I'm, I feel weird with God. We don't pray because we feel guilty or shameful in that moment. We don't come to church when we've maybe had a bad week morally and we feel distant from God. But those are the moments that we actually need to run to God. We need to go to him. We need to run to the cross because he's got his arms open and said, come home. Come be with me. Connect with me. Don't run. I think it's, let's go verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And we see here that God pursues. He doesn't wait for Adam and Eve to like come out of hiding. God pursues them. 
Just like Christ has pursued us in our shame when we were at our worst, God pursues them. Because Adam and Eve would never come out from hiding. He had to go to them. And he asked these questions, and we know he's God, so we know he knows where they're at. He knows what they've done. He's asking these questions to try to draw out reflection and get them to think about, here. hey, here's what's going on here. Here's what you've done. Here's why you've done what you did. It's a very just loving way that God approaches them because he knows they're in shame. He said, come in and start wiping them out. Well, there's consequences later. But in this moment, he's, he's, he's like a shepherd, like a father. He's asking these questions to try to draw out what's going on inside of them. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Okay, solid guy there, just playing it off. Um, no responsibility. Then the Lord, oh, then Eve, let's just pass this whole thing down the line. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. He, he's the one, he did it, and I ate. And it's interesting, when there's unhealthy shame, I think we even experience this, and kind of we know this of ourselves, um, that when we have unhealthy shame, one of the things how we deal with that is to blame. We get really good at blaming our circumstances, blaming other people, so we don't have to deal with our own junk. Because if we can keep the problem out there, then we don't ever have to do the hard work of what's going on inside of us. Eh, it must be their fault. Eh, once things change, or whatever it is. Okay, we blame others. Or on the flip side of that, I think if you play more of the victim mentality in your in shame, you, you take everyone's problems upon yourself. They're not even, it's, that doesn't even have anything to do with you, yet you're feeling the weight and you're heaping on judgment and more shame and more shame. And maybe you have nothing to do with the situation, but you're trying to take everyone else's condemnation upon yourself. And that's unhealthy as well. But it's very clear here we see the blame game happening. They're, they're confronted, they know that something ain't right, they start blaming. And I mentioned that shame plays out in the context of relationship, and I think this is really important. It helps us maybe think through some categories here. If, if we don't deal with shame ourselves, it causes us to really lie to ourselves. We kind of pretend that we're not this or we're not that or, oh, it's not that bad. And over time, we kind of forget who we are. We, forget to know, we don't know how to dig deep down anymore to, to know who we are. So we begin to pretend, and these things become blind spots. And then with others, it causes us to push others away. It's scary to let people in if we're hiding something. We don't want those fig leaves removed to let this other person see us from head to toe in our spiritual shame. We keep people at arm's length. Sharing our story gives us anxiety. Having doubts makes us feel like we don't want to share them. It causes us to use other people in subtle ways. Like you may be the guy or girl who likes to serve a lot. Well, why are you serving? Are you serving to try to like make up for some shameful feeling you have? Well, now you're just using that activity or using the people you're serving to actually cover yourself. So that's actually a selfish motivation. Okay, so this, this shame thing affects our relationships, I think, more than we think. And then obviously, the most damaging, shame causes us to hide from God. The very person who can actually heal our shame, we hide from. The only hope to remove our shame and the power of our shame, we want to hide from. We don't want anything to do with in those moments. 
So shame will become unhealthy if not dealt with. It doesn't cause us to, it doesn't push us to need Jesus more. It may become unhealthy. So what are we going to do? What's the antidote? What's the cure to shame? How is shame, how are we going to allow shame to push, to push us to Jesus? I think there's a few different approaches. The like first couple aren't the biblical approach, but I want to talk through them just so I think we're aware of this stuff maybe swirling around this. The first is um, just called the self-esteem movement. I think this happened, I remember from as young as I was, probably 40 or 50 years, you had this self-esteem that said, just, just think of yourself more highly than you are. Or don't say those negative things about you. Or tell yourself these things aren't true. Or surround yourself with positive people that will actually remind you of how good you are and not how maybe bad you are. And the problem, though, with this self-esteem is it's dangerous because it's still self-focused. Like, it's clear in Genesis that there is something wrong with us. There, there, we are naked spiritually. Like, that's a fact. That's, that's the truth. And so to pretend that we don't have something inside of us that, that needs to be changed... That's just dangerous. And the problem is the self-esteem thing, if you have some success over your, your negativity issues, then who's responsible for fixing you? It's you. So now you're just back into this slavery to self, like you're your own God, and now you have to fix yourself. Anytime something's wrong, anytime you're feeling bad, you gotta fix yourself. Talk to yourself this way. And obviously that doesn't work according to the scriptures, I believe. There's, a, there's kind of a newer movement. I don't know if it's a movement yet, but it's kind of this idea of just be vulnerable. Like, once you feel shame, identify it and just be vulnerable with people. Like, tell other people about your shame. And I think that's a really good start. It's a good place, self-awareness, communicating our shame to others is a very healthy practice, but oftentimes it just stops there. Like, the goal is to be vulnerable. But, okay, so once you're vulnerable, what, what happens next? Like, how do you move beyond this thing you're feeling shameful about? You're going to have to keep coming back to those other people. To, to, so you're going to be using them as little gods to help you process your shame every time. So you're actually leaning on them and not Jesus. Or vulnerability is going to become your fig leaf. Your identity, I'm a very vulnerable person. I'm a very open person. But you're still, shame, you're still in shame all the time. So that doesn't make you any more godly or Christ-like if you just become the vulnerable person. But again, that is a good step. But I think both of these approaches, what they're doing is they're managing shame. So these are techniques to manage our shame, and we don't need our shame to be managed. We need something to come in and crush the power that shame has in our life. We need something with more power that's better, that's more effective. And this happens when we bring our shame to God, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we receive this inner healing from our shame. Let's look at Genesis 3.21. Later on in this chapter, towards the end, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God is giving Adam and Eve an object lesson, telling them, when you mess up, when you sin, someone or something is going to have to pay the price for what you've done. There's going to have to be blood shed. When you sin, blood must be shed. And he's showing them this by how he does this. He, in, in the Garden of Eden, 
We ought to assume that animals may be living forever because there's no sin in the world. So God actually has to go find an animal and kill it and give the, the, the skins and the fur to Adam and Eve to be able to cover them. So God gets it. He knows they're naked. He knows they need help. So he covers them with something that's more effective than the fig leaves. And I think he shows us here that moving forward, we are naked. We do need something better to clothe us. I think this is a tip-off right here of what's to come. Paul's example, um, Paul was very open about his, his, his sin. Um, love about Paul, he'd say things like, I'm, I'm, I'm the most wicked. I'm the chief of sinners. Like, no one can be more sinful than me. Hear Paul saying that. So Paul was, was aware of his sin. He knew how, how, what he was capable of, which was really healthy. But it didn't ever seem Paul let it get to the point of just wallowing in his shame. He was able to deal with it before God in a healthy way before it became a problem for him. Listen to this verse out of 1 Peter. There was a man, ever a man who was acquainted with shame. It was, it was Peter, right? Like, Man, he was boast, very boastful. Most of Jesus' ministry, I'm never going to leave you. I'm right beside you. I'm the man. I'm like your guy. And then he's told, hey, you're going to actually deny me. He's, he's told that beforehand. He's like, no, no, I won't. And then he does it. Like how shameful must Peter feel in that moment? You talk about ultimate shame. Denying Jesus when Jesus needed him most. This is later on, this, when he writes this later on in his life, in his ministry, he's had time to heal, he's had time to grow up, he's had time to learn. He's become well acquainted with God's grace. Listen to Peter here. Talking about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed coming from a man who had experienced this. And this text, this Genesis 3 text, anticipates this, this future sacrifice that Jesus would make, this, this being a substitute for us, the shedding of blood for us so that we can be forgiven. Yes, it removes our guilt. We're brought back into a right, right relationship with God, but Jesus' life, death, and resurrection also gives us the power to overcome deep, dark feelings of shame. Of shame. Jesus was shamed so that we wouldn't have to experience shame. In the book I mentioned earlier, Ed Welch, he notes that the Bible seems, if, if you're trying to find something that's the opposite of shame, he says, looking at the scriptures, it, 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 one of those things could be honor. Honor being the opposite of shame. Um, listen again to 1 Peter, talking about shame and honor here. And he's quoting Isaiah, Romans, and the Psalms, same chapter as the one we just read. It says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And through this moving from shame to honor, think about some, some new identity statements here, some new qualities. Listen to this, poor to rich. Slave to royalty, weak to strong, foolish to wise, ugly to beautiful, useless to purposeful. This is what we're given 
through the blood of Christ. And thinking of those things, hopefully that begins to soften our, our hearts in those places that we are feeling shamed. I want to go back through these three really quick to show how the gospel affects those. So with God, let's start there. With God, we don't have to hide anymore, right? As it relates, we don't have to hide anymore. We can run to him. When we sin, when we mess up, when we're feeling shame, when we're feeling guilt, we run to him. When we sin, it becomes an, actually an opportunity to have intimacy with the Father because we've messed up and we need to, we need to ask for forgiveness. We want to go and, and, and sit with the Father. We want to make sure we're okay, those kinds of things. It should draw us back into intimacy rather than causing us to run away. Look at the prodigal son t- story. In Luke 15, the son runs back and before he can get a word out of his mouth, the father's putting a purple robe on him. Signal, uh, symbol of royalty. Do you realize that you have the robe? You're clothed already with the righteousness of Christ if you are in Christ and you have faith in him. So when you sin, you have the robe. Take your robe that you're fully clothed and go to him. He's waiting for you. He knows you're not perfect. The whole point of Jesus. He's already outed you. Like you're going to go hide from God and try to like hide all this. Like No, just go to God. Have this relationship with God that is open in that way. So we can also be honest with ourselves. So God, we can also be honest with ourselves. We realize that we're broken. We're messed up. We have these deep areas of places of our life that, we, that need to be dealt with. We can be humble in that way. And third, with others, we can receive love from others. We don't have to keep others at arm's distance when we're dealing with our shame in a healthy way. We don't have to use others to cover some inadequacy in our life. We can, we can serve others from a place of forgiveness and love rather than a place of manipulation or trying something trying to cover ourselves. Adam and Eve dealt with shame, our first parents. So I'm pretty sure that most of us on some level deal with it. So we must allow our shame to move us toward God, not away from God. Here here in a minute, we're gonna have some time to process here, kind of before communion, a, a time, just a few minutes of quiet. Those of you who are right now feeling the weight of shame, please run to Jesus, run to the cross, run to the one who has his arms wide open who awaits you, I pray that you would think, what, think of what you need to think about when I give you this space. It's a safe place to run to. Okay, think about the forgiveness that's offered for you in Jesus. Now, for those of you who are struggling to still see your shame, to, 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 to think about your shame, and maybe you still disagree with me that you have no feelings of shame, I want to give you this space to reflect for maybe the Holy Spirit to be able to, to help you in some ways, to maybe bubble some stuff up. I think sometimes our distractions and our culture and the noise and the lack of time we spend just in quiet, absolute, deathly silence prevents us from hearing the Spirit bringing up some of those things. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a couple of minutes just in silence. And then from there, we're going to move on to communion because that's where we celebrate and we see the good news. So take a few minutes right now. And just think, and then I'll close this in prayer, move into communion here in a few minutes.